Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with JP Newman, CEO of Thrive FP. JP is another leading voice from the States. In particular, he's from the hotbed that is the Texas multifamily market. And he's referred to as the money man, who's a career with two halves. He's got a fascinating outlook on the purpose for his company and himself. So JP, we always start the same way. So let's get chapter one underway. How did it all begin? Well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and uh my college career decision was as easy as my dad went to UCLA, I should try to get into UCLA, and there I went. So it really started as simply as that I wanted to go to the university where my father went. And, you know, part of the things early on for my family, we were a very close extended family, was certainly career and who you become is a super important value. And uh, so at, at age six or age five or six, I think I decided I was going to be a lawyer because that seemed like a nice professional career to do. And I didn't really think much about it. Of course, you're six and then you're 15. And next thing you know, you're in college and you still haven't thought that much about it. And I was political science pre-law at UCLA. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Great university. And uh, as I started realizing that I was going to have to start preparing for another five years of, you know, graduate school and, you know, LSATs and all that stuff, it made me finally kind of at that age, started questioning the why, not just, you know, how to get into or how to be a lawyer, but why be a lawyer. And that was probably the beginning of my journey of why the why is so important, uh, maybe even more important than the how, which I think has gone through my whole career. So I announced to the world that I was not going to be a lawyer. I was not going to go down that path. And that seemed to be a huge amount of, you know, energy and relief. The only thing that was challenging about it was I didn't know what I was going to replace it with. I, could, I didn't have this beautifully package story to my family. It's just like, I know I'm not going to be a lawyer and we'll need to figure, you know, and I'll figure out what it's going to be. I don't think what I realized at 21 years old was as a lot of my friends were becoming young professionals, I don't think I had any idea of the path I was about to go on, how long it was going to be, how stressful and how uncertain it was going to be for me to say that why and being passionate about what I was going to do was going to be important. And I did have some early mentors that really helped me think about, you know, passion, mission, authenticity, you know, started listening to the Tony Robbins tapes. Even, even then Tony Robbins was a, a powerhouse of starting to really kind of look at all those different things. And that's really what started my, my career path journey. Um, you know, as, as far as that goes, you know, in my, um, my twenties were mostly spent, you know, taking 20 different kinds of jobs, trying on a lot of, different hats to see what would stick. And most of them didn't stick. I thought maybe I wanted to be uh, developing houses. So I went to work for a strike company there. I, I felt like parked cars for Hollywood movie stars, which was pretty, pretty funny to go through Los Angeles and drive some pretty fancy cars and see some ridiculous homes and all the way to sales, multi-level marketing, just tried a bunch of things on that were really interesting. I finally kind of, found my love, I would say, or my, my first love, my first career in my mid-20s, which was this idea of 
kids programming and animation. And I think it just was the first thing which seemed less boring than a lot of these corporate jobs that were cubes and beige walls and blah, 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 and 10% rent increases or 10% sales increases or whatever it was. And this idea of being able to, I think that's the time that the movie Big came out with Tom Hanks. And I thought, gosh, if I can get paid for watching cartoons and making toys, well, that sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. And I got hired by a large, actually, toy company, plush toy company, to kind of work with the movie studios on the next big film that was going to come out and that we would make the toys and the kind of the things that was called licensing. And it's licensing the rights from the film studios. And I got to go get all these movie premieres. And, you know, I was in living in Los Angeles, so I got to go to a lot of the movie studios and they'd present at that time, it would be Jurassic Park or it was uh, Lion King or, you know, it was really the renaissance of, you know, Disney's animation. And I was definitely a part of that launch, you know, from Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, it really brought Disney back. And and it was an incredible time. And it really probably was the first time I felt this incredible joy and um, connection to my childhood, to creativity, to passion. You know, they were asking me to make decisions on which film I thought was going to be successful and why, and which toy would be successful and why. And I guess it really brought me back to some of my creative and my childhood roots and instincts. And I think I was a, in some ways, maybe a pretty typical boy, except I was very creative. And I really felt I had a good sense of what kids would like, Um, particularly boys. I was probably better than trying to guess at what, you know, I was better at action figures than I might've been at, you know, the next Barbie doll sensation, but it was good. I think I picked well and I did pretty well in that career. And um, that ultimately led me uh, for Sony pictures. They were looking for uh, a vice president of family entertainment to kind of come in and build a studio library for them. Because unlike almost every other movie studio, Sony really didn't have a large children's library. They didn't have anything to lean on to go back on. So they were looking for kind of someone with children's experience, but also an entrepreneur. And I don't think they exactly expected to find someone like me. The job interviews were quite entertaining because I think they were first, they looked for almost six months or a year. Their job search was like for a, an executive who had produced some of these films, not someone who had worked for a toy company. But I think I won them over with my, um, probably my energy. In fact, my, my, my boss who wound up becoming um, the head of Sony Pictures became the studio head. He was a New Yorker and he always would joke and say, I can't believe you're from Los Angeles with your kind of energy. You seem more like a New Yorker. And I think they just needed someone who was kind of a starter, who he could kind of leave alone because he was running the whole entire division and just wanted someone who would just do it, a self-starter. And I think that's, I think I was definitely a very unconventional choice, but I think it turned out to be a great choice. And, you know, I stayed at Sony for five and a half years, really, you know, creating a, a, a family library that included, you know, the Hensons. Dragon Tales, we did a, a large franchise called Swan Princess, and they even let me produce my own films, which was a lot of fun. So I was in this very kind of unique position where I got to produce films from you know, a large movie studio. And because we were based out of the home entertainment division where the DVDs and now the streaming would be, we had a lot of autonomy because we were actually the breadwinners and we made the most money. Selling, turns out that selling your, your DVDs during that time was the moneymaker for the studio. So, cause that's where all the retailers were. So it was quite an amazing job. I loved it. A lot of incredible um, artists I got to work with and celebrities and voices and it's just a terrific time. And uh, 
you know, like what happens at a lot of movie studios after five and a half years of doing it, the, the person who mentored me and really was behind me that my boss got promoted to ultimately run the studio and the person who um, kind of became in charge of family entertainment, he, he, he liked me, but he also had his own political agenda and um, he wanted to bring in somebody who he felt would be like a loyal henchman from the beginning. And I just couldn't fit in that box. I was already kind of a loyal henchman to another studio executive. So, you know, they, but they couldn't get rid of me because I was very productive. I, I produced a $150 million uh, library for them. So I kind of decided on my own, it was time to go. And uh, one was, again, I kind of saw that like I was going to be more limited than I was in the past. And also I really had a dream all my life, you know, uh, after uh, from UCLA on, uh, being an entrepreneur and having a certain kind of lifestyle where I got to call the shots. I think I realized after five and a half years at studio that that I really, while I was a really really good entrepreneur and self starter and was able to manifest and create things, I was horrible horrible at at, stu- at office corporate politics and I would drive people crazy because as as my boss said, I would tend to go from A to B without asking C. And that probably is my personality to this day. So let's just get it done for better or worse. It just fits in better in certain positions than, than other positions. So that was, uh, you know, that was really through what I call, you know, my first career, which is really this licensing entertainment and, and five and a half years at Sony Pictures. Um, kind of like college, you know, when I left, I didn't have a huge plan. Um, I loved producing films, uh, really was a passion of mine. And I, so I did try on my own. I created my own production company, uh, started producing my own films and realized that when you leave a movie studio, it gets much harder to produce for a lot of reasons, um, but not having the backing of a studio from their finances to their legal team. Um, I was able to produce several films, but just very, very chaotic without that large infrastructure um, behind you. And it ultimately forced me out of the industry because everything I was making was taking five times longer and I wound up winding up in lawsuits because in Hollywood, sometimes people who smile at you aren't quite as honest um, as you would like them to be. And that's kind of what happened um, to me after producing a phenomenal film with Disney. But uh, again, it took lawyers to get paid and two years to, to recoup. So that was, that was, that got me to Sony, you know, so, so after leaving, you know, Sony and starting my own production company, um, and quite frankly, failing at it, I, I couldn't make a living. And at that time, it was really becoming less and less flattering because I was no longer 20. I was in my early 30s and um, very awkward position because after being a vice president at a studio with a beautiful office and a balcony and an assistant and flying around the world and, you know, a fairly prestigious job. Um, I was the youngest vice president out of a division of over 400 people. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's ego, there's confidence, there's a lot of, you know, worked really hard to get to that place of being promoted and, you know, and being that, and being that person in the studio. And I could have continued to stay on there. I would have had less power than I would have had or autonomy than I would have had for the first five and a half years. But, you know, again, I could have stayed on. I had a contract and I left. And, uh, you know, I, it is definitely humiliating because by, by the time you're in your early 30s, a lot of your friends are already, you know, further down their career path. They're getting married. They're having kids. And my snapshot looking on the outside was I was unemployed, unattached, unemployed. And uh, I had burned through a lot of my savings, quite frankly, suing the person who didn't properly pay me for my, my last film, Where the Red Fern Grows. 
And uh, it wasn't really a pretty position. And it ultimately forced my hand, which was my family my, and my father in particular was doing real estate. I grew up around real estate, even as a kid. And he was doing, you know, private, I say private equity, really syndication, but on, on a smaller level. And quite frankly, he was towards his re own, own retirement. He at one point had a you know, reasonably sized office. And at that point, he'd given everything up. and was just kind of doing some smaller deals on his own. And really, if I look back, if, you know, to acknowledge him, to, to take me in at a time when I was definitely feeling um, very unstable and to help teach me a skill and for me to ask, would you teach me? And for him to be willing to, to teach me was really something to this day that I'm appreciative. And, you know, my dad's, thank goodness, is still alive and still actually chases smaller real estate deals in Los Angeles. And uh, we have a lot of fun together. He, he, he seems like that's something he'll do for the rest of his life. He just loves it. And, you know, in those, in those two years together, if you can imagine, you know, I have, you know, talk about humility. My dad was, you know, working out of my childhood bedroom. So I'm now back in my childhood bedroom. His business was really on the sunset. So I hadn't really had to start finding. And at this time, the, the business is ultimately finding new investors and, you know, starting to invest in some smaller apartment buildings, which I had no network on doing. And again, kind of looking back at where I came from, it's like, how did I go from being a vice president of a movie studio, you know, with this very prestigious life to being back in my childhood bedroom, really dialing for dollars um, and learning an entirely new career, an entirely new skill that quite frankly, I knew very little about. And not only was it like having to learn a new skill in a second career, but, you know, I, I came from a very creative background. So how do you, you know, in my, in my mind, I'm like, Maybe I really just sold out. Like, how do you go from being this producer of animation, working with movie stars, you know, writing, you know, working with scripts, you know, essentially it's almost like being an executive producer. How do you go from that to a private equity real estate finance? Like, you know, and you start to ask all the questions, you know, is this going to lead me to misery? Will I ever be happy? Can this ever be creative or have I just sold out? And that really was with me for a couple of years. And, uh, I would say they were very trying years, depressing, humility, and I just kind of stuck with it. Partly because I'd say I felt like I didn't have a choice. Uh, at the time, I just met my my bride to be, and you know, I also had a dream of you know I wanted to be the provider, and I didn't want to be, and so I had a lot of values. I didn't really see myself going to take a job again um, unless I had to, because I kind of had been through that, and I just knew that I'm not good with bosses. And so getting through it, um, I kind of got to a point where I realized with my father, I had learned what I needed to learn, but I needed to go because, you know, I think the way fathers are, they're incredible, but no matter what, you're still that, you're still their boy. And I think after being a vice president of a studio and having as much energy as I had, I really needed to do it on my own. And it'd be very hard to not hurt his feelings. So ultimately, you know, I moved, you know, Partly because of that and partly because I was just done with Los Angeles. I think everyone still saw me in my first career. I think the friends who stayed with me, you know, saw me as the entertainment guy. And those who used to use me or think it was cool became less interested in me when I became the real estate guy. In fact, I had three or four people say, can you, can you uh, sell me a house? And I'm like, I don't do houses. I raise money. But it was just kind of funny. It is very much L.A. that people look up to you, particularly if you're in entertainment tends to be the cool industry. So I realized that it was time for me to move on at that time. That, at that point, I had gotten married and um, 
really just moved to Austin, Texas. I did have a hunch before everyone else thought it was cool that it was going to be super cool and it was going to grow and be great for a long-term career. Um, and I also quite frankly wanted to reinvent myself. I was tired of being looked at in my first career and I wanted to kind of have a whole new set of friends and a whole new business environment and also respectfully be able to grow and now create my own company, learning the skills I did from my father and some of the early infrastructure he provided me. And that really was my early roots of what became my current company, Thrive, which started out of a, a basement of my first house that I purchased and, you know, has now grown into a, you know, a company that manages just about 200 million of assets. We've done over $2 billion of uh, real estate, mostly workforce housing apartments, which simply means, you know, rents of US $800 to $1,400. And we've done about 14,000 of those units. We also do senior, we also do, I just built the largest sports complex in Texas because it's a whole other story as to the model why I chose to do that. And if I could, you know, really that, that transformation from being the guy who was really humiliated to really growing a life, I think that in the back of my mind, I never could see at the time it started happening with some success. And the success really happened, I would say one investor at a time just starting to trust me. And trust is kind of a funny thing because I don't think you really could have trusted me not because I was untrustworthy, but in my first couple of years, I just didn't have the knowledge. I was really good at producing films, but what did I really know about, you know, my, besides my instincts and what I was taught, it took, you know, a while to quite frankly, take my brain, a hemisphere that, you know, in my, in my twenties and my thirties, I was really more of a creative hemisphere production. You know, I still had to watch budgets and, and do legal. So I've always had both hemispheres, but I definitely would lean much more heavily on my creative hemisphere and real estate. At the time, this seemed much more mental. It seemed much more of a cerebral atmosphere. It's, you know, Microsoft Excel spreadsheets and performance and business and money and returns and contracts. And in a way, it really bummed me out. I thought, gosh, you know, I kind of, am I going to give up on creative, you know, just for this? And I think one of the, the beautiful things, after, you know, again, getting a small office and, you know, getting one investor at a time to trust me, and thank goodness I, I, I'd earned the trust that I worked really hard to educate myself and continue, hopefully, to you know, educate myself to, to, to be trustworthy and be a good fiduciary. And um, you know, ultimately, I got to a point, I would say, four years in Austin, where I was starting to get a, a following of people who were trusting me and gathering a group of money. But I also had some luck. I'd say I almost had an internet startup, a very influential podcaster who started investing with me after a year of investigating me, started investing with me and was so pleased he started talking about it on a podcast. And his podcast was a very large podcast. He's a very successful guy. And uh, it was crazy because he said to me one day, would you be willing to be on my podcast to talk about what you do? And I don't think I really realized his influence and size of his audience. So he said to me, you should wear a clean shirt. There's going to be about 40,000 people watching you and your partner. I'm like, oh, and at the time, a person who I'd hired named Adrian Lushanowski, really for no matter I said hired, he came, he was, he was working at the time for a home builder and, and the U.S. economy was on his last, his last downturn. He, we were friends and he, he kind of said to me at, a, at a lunch, do you think I should still be a home builder? And I said, absolutely not get out of that business. We should get in the lending business together. And he jumped on board 
And he says, I'll raise money for you. And I said, you know, you realize at this point in my company, I can't pay you a salary. It's going to be all whatever you produce. And he said, okay. And so Adrian jumped in and joined me and ultimately became my partner, which he's my partner today. But I have to say the first year for him was pretty tough because he had his own learning curve to go from being a home builder and a stock trader uh, with a degree in social work to how do you actually raise money. And I'd say he had his own you know, path of humility and not certainly making much money in that first year, but that really became the magic moment between us where we were both asked to go on this, you know, this podcast together. And we didn't really realize it, but we both are extroverts that come from kind of different upbringings and what have you. But it was really the first time I think we realized that there was magic between us. And it almost became back to my a full circle. Now we're producing a show together in some ways. We're talking about cash flow real estate and a lot of investment principles and how, you know, what to do and what, you know, what pitfalls to avoid. And we kind of had this perfect cadence together of not talking over each other, but, you know, and, and what happened really from those was money started coming everywhere to us and new investors started coming. I mean, people around the world were starting to send us large checks, quarter of a million. And we'd be like, we'd call them and say, don't you want to know more about us before you send us a check? That's a big check you're sending us. And they'd say, we know you already. We feel like we've heard you speak. We trust the source of the podcast because we've watched this person and we know he's done work on you guys. And we know he's a, he would actually like take pictures of his checks and show the checks that were coming in. And people were starting to invest. And so in some ways I laugh. I say, well, I come from a very traditional, boring, non-progressive business or career, which you could would call private equity real estate. In some ways, I was also an internet startup success of, you know, really becoming a personality uh, in a way that I never would have dreamed of or could have never picked the path. And in some ways, going back to those entertainment roots of production, you know, story and what have you. And it started lighting me up. I'm like, wow, this is kind of fun. And I think the cool part about it was I started dreaming up and saying, well, if we can do this and we have some success and I'm no longer working, you know, in survival mode and I get to work beyond survival mode, what else can I create? And then you start asking those kind of questions. What else, you know, what, what is my why? What is my mission? What can I else can I create? And again, those are all luxury questions that I really couldn't ask myself when I had to, you know, pay the bills, you know, pay the mortgage and make sure my kids had clothes. But as we started getting a little bit of success, I started, you know, I started asking what I'd call on the uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I got started to ask some other questions uh, that are more courageous. And not everyone was behind it, but um, it actually inspired me. I went to a TED talk and they were talking about this idea of what would thriving look like. And from that, I became Thrive FP, which was, you know, the FP, it was kind of a joke on an LLC or an LP or whatever, you know, which is a very common legal uh, formation in the United States. And I, I wanted to kind of almost play a creative loop on that and said, I'm going to be Thrive FP, which the FP would stand for for purpose, for profit. And um, I intentionally did the for purpose first and then the for profit second, which made a lot of people uncomfortable, including my partner, saying, you know, people may think, what if our investors start to think that we've lost our way and that we're thinking more of you know, purpose-driven things. In this case, I wanted to make sure that all the stakeholders, including the residents in these apartments, were being treated well. And I wanted to make sure the janitor and the managers and, and my staff and anyone who was part of the whole 
basically any stakeholder, which really is the principle of this conscious capitalism. If you're ever interested, you can look up conscious capitalism, which has been around for a while, but really kind of went big with another local Austin entrepreneur named John Mackey, who ultimately created uh, and was the founder of Whole Foods Supermarket, which I think you guys all know Amazon bought them about two years ago. At, I don't know how many billions, but it became a very large success story. But John really, I heard him speak several times in Austin about this idea of all your stakeholders thriving. And that's really was the basis behind Thrive, our current basis of Thrive FP. But again, there was a lot of fear about, you know, did we lose our focus? How would people perceive us? Uh, you know, this, this, you know, this could be scary. How are we going to message this? And, um, I had full faith that we could do both, but there was, it was met with some, I think, skepticism, fear, and uncertainty with my staff. And maybe that's the time that a founder or an entrepreneur that, you know, you, you take a chance with that vision. Well, just let me, JP, let me just cut in there before, yeah. before we go on onto that vision. I've been sort of swept away by you. So, um, I suppose it's no it's no coincidence that a former sort of Sony uh, employee can tell a really good story. So I've been sat back sort of very quietly uh, enjoying this. But something that's, that occurred to me as you sort of tell this story, and maybe it's because you sort of, you, with hindsight, you make it sound so easy. How receptive was the Austin market then to this creative, you know, without a track record? Oh, it was very difficult at first. And the funny thing which I didn't even talk about is there was, uh, at the time that we really were launching the company, there was two large people, um, Bernie Madoff had just been convicted of fraud. And there was a second uh, person who also, a very famous person, who, and, and they were they were basically convicted of billions of dollars of fraud. So there was a lot of skepticism and fear in the marketplace, and there was a downturn. And so it was not that easy to be young and uh, and tell your story and really get a lot of attraction to it. Uh, there was a lot of fear and a lot of doubt and skepticism. And uh, you know, we started. You know, right now our you know our minimums are like a hundred. 100,000, 150,000 US, but at the time we started at 25,000. And to be honest, I think what I realized at the time was because of the damage that was caused by these con artists, I had to, you know, I had to do things differently in order to survive. And so really in the early days, I started thinking about, you know, fiduciary, which is, you know, one of the most important things when you're handling people's money. How can you be a good fiduciary? How can you prove it to a potential client? that you are a good fiduciary. At the time, the revolutionary technology was the creation of Dropbox. Do you, I imagine you guys know what Dropbox is, these, yep. the, the first cloud, and at the time it was revolutionary. But what Dropbox gave to me was a chance to tell people, and it was really the beginning of, hey, you don't have to just trust me with my story about why this is a good real estate deal or a good loan or a good real estate loan, but I'm gonna put all the materials in this box that you can just click on this link and you can like have your best friend or have your lawyer or have anyone look at this and then you can make an independent decision whether you agree with me. Because ultimately, really, to this day, what you're paying me for as an investor, you're paying any person for as an investment advisor, is you're, you're paying me because you believe that I have enough experience uh, and knowledge to make a good decision, a good investment decision that will create a a good risk-adjusted return on your behalf. That's really all I do. That's my service at the end of the day. And Dropbox was a huge help during that time of fear and skepticism of telling people for the first time, you don't have to trust me. Why don't you trust and verify 
And, and I think that was a big deal. I think that was a super big deal. And the funny thing is a lot of people don't want to go through the time to actually do it. But just offering that, some people did take me up on it and really, really scrub hard. And a lot of them didn't. But I think just the offer of knowing that they had some of their own autonomy was a big key to our success early on, uh, being able to build you know, an investor base, uh, one investor at a time. So JP, you know, you know before the sort of pod out, uh, I explained, we'd, we'd like to do a bit of research on, a, um, on our guests. And I've got to say, I, I really enjoyed doing my research on you, JP. And, it's, and I think there's probably a, 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 the differences between sort of, sort of Anglo-American sort of backgrounds because the guys I spoke, I spoke to on sort of in the States about you were absolutely sort of gushing in terms of the, uh, what they thought of you sort of, uh, sort of, and, uh, sort of, uh, personally, sort of emotionally and sort of professionally. And I, and I gotta say, I think if you ever asked someone on my side, who's worked with me for the 10 years, I think I'd be lucky to squeeze out of them sort of, uh, something as simpler sort of, he's, he's a good guy. So I've enjoyed talking to you, um, uh, to your contacts. Now, one of them said, one of the strongest sort of traits about JP is his professional and personal congruence. Now I've got to admit, I did have to Google congruence in order to uh, <laughs> uh, to, to check to check exactly what he what he meant. Um, but he's he's talking here about that sort of harmony between sort of professional and personal. Now that sounds like a uh, something that is probably gained with time, and and could well be a bit of a luxury to someone at the at the earlier stages of uh, of their sort of real estate career. How soon did that start to appear? Do you think in in your real estate career? I really think looking back that having that five and a half years of corporate experience was not, you know, when you talk about first, first or second career, I think a lot of that really polished me. I think it takes some of those struggles and realizing that you're, you know, it gave me a chance to kind of work out my style of communication. Cause ultimately when you're, when you're with a large team, whether you're an entrepreneur in a corporate, you know, workplace, people, if people don't get you, you could be really talented, but if people don't get you or can't see or see your value, you're not going to get promoted. And you're not going to be recognized. So I do think that that Sony kind of helped really polish that congruence, as you would say, between being personable, which kind of was more of an innate, you know, extroverted thing, probably that, you know, was more, I'd call that, you know, birth. And then the professional, I think, was the blending of the two. And again, I give Sony maybe just a lot of those 20s, a lot of that quirkiness I was telling you about during the 20s of, you know, trying to sell ideas or telemarketing and all that stuff, just kind of a communication style where I just learned how best to hopefully connect and communicate um, with people. Really good. Really good. Has, it, has that been a skill that you've sort of worked on, though, over time? Has that got better? Yes, definitely. I think, I think one of the things that I've had to learn maybe in the last 10 years, too, is that listening more for cues of what people really want will get you a lot further because we're a lot of times, you know, I think when I was younger, I was more in my head about having to get my pitch or my sales point across or my service or my value. And as I get older, I think I've learned that actually if you listen to most people, they'll tell you exactly what they want to know, their, their concerns, their fears, their excitement. You know, most people actually want, they want to feel like they, they want your service or product. Most likely they want your service or product. They just are fearful of being, you know, scammed or that you didn't tell them the truth and you know it wasn't as good you know all the advertisements like what you sold them once they get it they'll be disappointed or embarrassed because it wasn't as good as promised and i think so for a lot of people you know you figure if they're calling you they're probably interested in your product or service 
Um, and you can get a feel for that. So again, that's where I really think that listening and looking for cues, and that does come with time and experience of just talking to a lot of different people. Um, I'd say at this point, I feel like it's probably one of my greater strengths is being able to connect with people, whoever they are, introverts, extroverts, and just listening for cues. And before we, we return back to the, you know, sort of the birth then of Thrive, I wanted to ask, we've done toys, we've done filmmaking, now we're doing real estate lending. At this point in your career or your or life, you know, do you feel happier? Do you feel like you're on the right course or, or is there more work to be done? Well, I think the birth of Thrive was really the next step of really marrying the creativity that I really yearned for and loved with my business acumen. And I would say that at this point, I learned to kind of rebalance my brain, uh, where I still probably at this point have the luxury of being able to lean a little heavier on creativity. But I have a very disciplined financial discipline and acumen that took years to build. And sometimes I don't even realize it. But to me, numbers, I do numbers in my head now very fast. I can look at a deal, but again, maybe this just comes with time. So the answer is yes. I think Thrive was kind of the pathway of, and the invitation with some success to really kind of use, to reinvite and, and maybe double down on using my creativity for success and growth, but then also realizing that I had this whole other skill in my cerebrally and financial discipline and really marrying both together in a way that I never really imagined that I could do. Superb. Now let's get the. I've been sort of kept the uh, audience sort of waiting. Let's get back then to the birth of uh, Thrive. Tell me a bit more about sort of what was happening that that sort of time. Well, you know, to change your company name after you know being invested in a name, there's always you know risk in that. We were at a very traditional name called Principles Capital Funding. So you're, now you're doing branding. Uh, you're doing. I'm doing messaging for the first time. I'm really starting to think about what do I want. And ultimately, when you start going into your whys. And I had a wonderful coach who helped me. Like, what was the vision? Like, why am I even doing this? Because at this, this point, I'm starting to make some money, some pretty good money. And okay, so what's next? Because, you know, I spent the first, you know, from my 20s just trying to make a living. Okay, all of a sudden, I'm making a living. Okay, maybe one day I'll have some financial freedom. Okay, I'm starting to make some financial freedom. I'm starting to make some money. I'm saving money. I can buy a house. I can do this. Okay. But I never really got past that thought of, okay, well, what's next? And or, or why even bother doing it? I think a lot of people don't get past that phase. You just keep working or I can double down my company. I can keep making more money. But I think it can lead to what you'd call a midlife crisis because it's not really connected to anything deeply personally because you start to think about, I think, in your 40s, if you're lucky, what is your legacy? What is your mission? What do you want to be known for as you get older? What do you, how do you want your kids to look at you? and know you, what values are you trying to teach your kids and are you living those values? And I think a lot of these questions were kind of starting to occur to me in my 40s. And you know, my, my ultimate why really became is I want to make sure that when this is all over, that, you know, that I was, that I lived my life through a lens of kind of curiosity and giving and loving and respect for my family, my community and the entire planet. And that really became kind of to this day a lot of my mantra is really using creativity for good and for service. And I find that as I get older and the company continues to grow and succeeds, I kind of double down on that idea of how do I serve, you know, how can I use this for-profit mechanism and capitalism to serve as big as possible, where it's still the ultimate services to create a good, good risk-adjusted return for my investors. But beyond that, how do I use this very conventional, 
non-creative, which could be a, even a, you know, a blood, it could be blood sucking in the wrong hands. Um, and, and how do you take that and turn it into just the opposite? And so for Thrive Now kind of going forward, what's really juiced me from that day until now is just kind of re-upping non-conventional wisdom. So I'll give you one example, you know, beyond the name, it was like, I just kept making things up and trying them out and some things worked and some things didn't. Like one thing that did work is, you know, we dreamed of doing a nonprofit. And the reason why I wanted to do a nonprofit is I wanted to, I have this idea and we're still a work in progress where I wanted any resident in an apartment, which in America, 41% of these residents, these workforce housing residents, when I say workforce housing, I'm talking about your teachers, your policemen, your firemen, and 41% of them in America don't have more than $500 US of savings. So it's like, these are the people, they're not the homeless people, but they're very vulnerable. And when you have, you know, pandemics and other things, they're very, very vulnerable. And my ongoing kind of vision and mission is how do we treat them with the utmost respect and give them a chance where they're not always at the back of the line financially, they're not always that stressed. And so the vision for me was, you know, a lot of government officials talk about, we want to make things as cheap as possible, cheap apartments, we're going to government subsidize. And I would say it's universal, whether it's the UK or the US, when the government gets involved in subsidies, you create ghettos. And I'm sure I can name almost any major city that they put you in the wrong part of the city for the wrong rent and you start reinforcing that pattern of poverty. And for Thrive and in my world, it's like, let's don't create the cheapest price, let's create the most value. And so by creating the most value for me, the vision has been creating programs that come with your rent. So instead of just renting a rectangular box that's 900 feet, you know, a bathroom and a bedroom, let's create these programs around health, financial uh, advancement uh, and education. And But I realized that a lot of investors may not feel comfortable with that because that takes money and that could be taken away from their investment. So two things have kind of happened simultaneously. One, I've had to say to my investors, we do social impact. That is part of our ethos and part of the business plan. And there's a great business case because when you actually treat your residents well, we're finding that they stay almost 50% longer and you hit your turnover costs go down and your retention rates go up, which makes you a better return. So ironically, doing the right thing, as we proved it, is financially accretive. And it's not, you know, people need jerk and think it's bad, but it's been great. But as I really wanted to do some larger programs and really create value, for instance, during the pandemic, we are the first, um, I think, apartment owners in the United States that are working with a large telemedicine company and we're providing uh, free telemedicine to residents in some of our select apartments that we know are likely not covered with health insurance or don't have an, uh, telemedicine as an employee benefit. So we look for a certain demographic and we've, we, we've been doing that and we're now in about 3,000 uh, apartment units, uh, ours and other people. But we realized we couldn't do that through our traditional things. So we launched a nonprofit about three years ago and we raise money through individuals, organizations, and a lot of people within the industry. And it's really the first of its kind, this idea of um, how do we help these people without being a charity? Uh, when I say a charity, just you know, creating affordable housing, let's create programs that actually lessen their financial burden um, and give them things that, that they don't ordinarily get. And, and my ultimate goal, quite frankly, is that this just becomes an industry standard in America, and hopefully it'll, it'll cross the pond into the UK and across the world that, that when you rent an apartment, it comes with the expectations that comes with some of these concierge services and products. 
Well, when you put it like that, I think it's hard to argue with, isn't it? Yeah, it really um, is. Back on the, the the topic and sort of the uh, about sort of your career, I want to be able to do to get our listeners to benefit then from you know from this sort of dual uh, sort of careers you've had and and hopefully that means it sort of it means you've learned more lessons than than others have as well. Going back to something you said earlier about the why, I bet lots of people are listening to this and I've I've heard this before, but I wonder whether we've you know sort of. Uh, uh, myself or our listeners have spent enough time really thinking about this. How important has that been in your success? It's really been crucial. And it really, the why is just the beginning. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Simon Simon's a pretty big TED speaker, but I think when you really go into your why, it's not just like trying to, because it's hard. It's Most of us don't really know our why, but if you actually go deep enough to say, you know, why do I want to be in this? You might say, I want to support my family. But ultimately, if you really go down the channel, why do you want to support your family? And you can keep, we can go down this rabbit hole, and most people get stopped at some mental concept of why. And a lot of times it's accommodation, it's very practical, but really if you go down deep enough and you've really done this exercise correctly, and I really recommend people go to their local coffee shop and take two hours of the pad of paper and keep going down the rabbit hole, and you'll know you're there when your why ends at an emotion. And, and it, usually, you know, it could be a different emotion, but if you really get to the very, you know, if you keep going why, 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 It'll end in an emotion of, of why you're doing it. And the second thing is, if you, if you, if the second exercise I recommend is, you almost have to reverse engineer your life. So you kind of go to the day of your funeral, and if you could just be a witness of your own funeral, I know it sounds morbid, but literally, what are people saying about you? What are your kids saying about you? What are your friends and your colleagues saying about you? And what are you hoping they'd be saying about you? Besides, you know, he was a good guy or whatever, like the usual. Like what else? What else, and it doesn't have to be, you know, for everyone, not everyone's meant to do, you know, monumental things. It's not like you have to be an entrepreneur and create a hundred million dollar company. Sometimes it's just great to say he was the best father I ever knew. He was a great friend. He really served his community well. Like he, he, he would help. He was a great mentor. He was a great teacher. He was an inspiration, whatever or she. And I think it's really important to get honest because I really in some ways believe that each one of us, you know, I don't care what religion you are or if you don't believe in a God or whatever, but I, I do think we're all given some of these beautiful traits and we're not all, we may be equal in spirit, but we all are kind of given like, you know, some guys are great physically, some great guys. We all have these beautiful given gifts. And I think really knowing your gift and identifying it and leaning into it and doubling down in your gift. And I find by, by actually identifying your why and knowing your gift and then a lot of people say, well, that's a great gift, but I have no idea what that's to do with my career. I got to make money and I got to pay the bread. That's, that's a luxury I can't afford to look at. And I think what I'm learning as I get older and kind of my passion, I'm about to launch a podcast around this, is by, by, by really knowing your mission and identifying these things and really kind of taking that creative approach of starting to ask some questions like that, almost anybody can marry their, their purpose with their career. I don't care how traditional their career is. And again, it doesn't have to be like you change everything, but the more you just ask the question, it's interesting, at least in my experience, is how the universe will will kind of unfold in your direction. Not easily necessarily. There's a lot of trials and tribulations. But in a way, I think it, I would almost argue that it creates your, your, your career advantage. You become a different kind of candidate and people see you differently for the better or a different kind of business owner or what have you. Right, JP, I've got... I feel like I'm, if, if I didn't ask this, I'd probably leave something on the table and I'd let you too easily off the hook. 
is that notion then of sort of that social conscience, is that easy to say when you do run a hundred million pound company? You know, there must have been times when you've been conflicted between, you know, doing the most sort of commercial deal and then and then also doing you know having the do good as well. For someone who who doesn't run their own company, for someone who's you know who's on the on the way up as regards to you know part of a different company, what advice would you give them to help them with that dilemma? That's a really good question, by the way, and, and a very, very hard one. I, I agree with you. It's much easier to to say that when you're kind of on the other side. And I feel like I actually spent most of my career kind of, you know, digging in survival mode. Uh, you know, it was not I was not an overnight success. I was I was a work in progress, you know, and I still am a work in progress to a certain degree. You know, even going forward, you know, you're always, you know, I think reinventing yourself. You know, I, I heard this expression. I thought it was kind of interesting. What is the purpose of work? And this was kind of a philosophical Judeo-Christian kind of question that was asked to me. What is the purpose of work? And I think most people would answer work is you got to make a living. It's to put, you know, bread on the table. And actually, if you go back, there's a notion that work is actually your way of, uh, as a co-creation with a higher, with your higher spirit, primarily. It's a co-creation where this notion is that we've been given this beautiful planet and now it's our job to transform it into the world we want it to be. And I know that sounds lofty, but I don't know if, if you're if you're delivering the post or the mail, or if you're just, you know, the checkout person at Whole Foods, the energy that we give to people and, and, and the service is so valuable at every level. I mean, I know it's easy that everybody wants to talk about being an entrepreneur, but I would argue that, you know, if you're if you literally are a checkout person or a vice president of a large corporation, you're part of an important, you know, you may not be able to make us, you know, a, you know, you might not say, well, it's not as big of an influence or less of an influence, but your job is part of the collective spirit that becomes, that, that company is the collective energy of its employees. So I would argue that the more you are in connected to what you're there to do, and that might be just to make someone's day. It might be because you, because your, your power, your why is about, you know, respect for other people or, or helping other people create joy. So, I, you know, I had one guy, let's give you one example. One guy started his real estate career selling homes here in Austin. And he's like a very traditional person selling homes. But his real passion on the weekends is environment, climate change. And he has a concern for climate change. And I said, why do you simply do one thing? And that when you sell a house, you know, give them something that's environmentally, like you can give them a compost bin. You could give them, if, you, if it's a big sale, maybe you give them an $800 tankless water heater, which saves energy. I guess my point is like a lot of people think that their religious or their mission is on the weekends and then work is Monday through Friday. And I know it's hard and I struggled with this for many, many years. I'm still always challenging myself of how do I really do this and, and what have you. It's a continual struggle, but, but I really believe it could happen in just small gestures. But I think asking the question for everyone of trying to marry what you, why you got to, you know, what, whatever your practice is, whatever your loftier goal is, call it, you know, your connection with a higher spirit, or it's not even, maybe it's not a higher spirit, you know, your legacy in life of what really, really gives you passion. Just start asking the question, and it might just be a small change. It may not be a huge change, but 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 small changes ultimately can lead to big changes because you start, your brain starts asking the question, well, if I can do this, what else can I do? And it really, I think, hopefully encapsulates all parts of your life. And I truly believe on some way beyond just having a successful career, I think that's the architecture or part of our architecture 
for happiness in our lives and, and feeling contentment. You know, I, I know there's a lot of other things that's too simplistic, but I think it's certainly an important element that, that goes into the mix. Well, JP, for, for lots of reasons, I think our audience sort of tuning in now will have been heard lots of different things and different perspectives, I, uh, I think, that you, you've sort of shared and brought, and brought to this. So I'm really, really grateful for that. Now, last, last question of the day. We've spent lots and lots of time now looking backwards and chatting about sort of what's built up to this moment. So what's next for you and Thrive? So two different questions. You know, Thrive at this point has a wonderful group of um, I have a wonderful team that's really running the day-to-day. I think at this point, I've had the luxury to kind of think about what's next. Um, You know, for me, you know, besides continuing to create, you know, great returns for investors, which is the engine of of the product and service, and can't can't leave that, but I really am going to continue on the mission, both on the for-profit and the non-profit side of really changing best practices in our industry, which I believe will be more... uh, beneficial to investors and really hopefully to gently, when I say convince, convince through competition that treating residents better and better and having just awareness will create better outcomes. So that really is my mission on the, on the Thrive side is to change industry practices. And on the, the other side of it, um, I'm really kind of captivated right now with how fast things are changing. We all know that capitalism, money, career, you know, look in the last 18 months, who would have ever thought that you would go from potentially a full-time office job to, you know, even at my office, it's hybrid right now. It's, uh, it's, it's three days a week, four days a week for different positions, and we're all making it up. And, and my, my, my fascination right now is with capitalism and saying, we have all these new things changing, how we work, where we work, crypto, how do we store money? You know, the, these ideas of tokens taking replacement of shares in the stock market and having community funding things. And these are all fascinating topics. So I think for me right now, I actually think we're in a hugely disruptive, interesting, and I'm actually quite optimistic about the future as far as how companies will run uh, and how entrepreneurs and companies will function in the future. I think we're in an incredibly disruptive time. I think we're, as the internet disrupted communication and how we all talk to each other, I think this new world of decentralized finance is going to be just as big as a disruptor on how we all talk about how businesses um, perform. I do think these topics we're talking about as far as a a brand, the power of a brand, a brand that has a mission behind it, not just a how, but more of a why, what it stands for. I think post-pandemic, particularly to the younger generations, companies and brands that are showing that they care about a certain mission uh, or something bigger than just making money will be the ultimate companies that have the biggest chances of uh, becoming our next big companies. I think you're going to see a lot of communal movements, a lot of companies that come from nowhere and become large. Our next Amazons will come from nowhere. And I think a lot of them will come from community uprisings and movements of disrupting traditional companies. Well, JP, thank you very much for uh, for sharing this time. I've really been sort of captivated by this sort of this story and sort of where where you've been and where and where you're going, mate. So thank you again for uh, for sharing all that. Absolutely, thank you so much. This has been fun. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than forty-five thousand global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast. 
and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.